It's good to be with you this morning, and if you're a guest with us today, we're particularly glad that you're here with us. We're always glad for those who regularly attend, and we don't want to ignore that, but if you're a guest, we hope that this has been encouraging to you so far, and uh, will be a blessing to you as we turn in your copy of God's Word of 1 Corinthians 3. I'd also invite those who are participating in junior church up through grade 6. You can be dismissed at this time, children. If you'd like your child to be in an age-appropriate service, they are more than welcome to follow the herd. Uh, downstairs. Just remember to pick them up at the end, all right, so our workers can go home. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're just getting started today. Uh, really, this last two weeks together in chapter 3, which is right in the middle of Paul's first stop and God's plans for a healthy church. <clears throat> That focus has been on unity, and we saw in our running start last week, as we really got our feet wet in chapter 3, the chapter is loaded with important details regarding the Christian life, regarding uh, behavior, as Paul diagnoses this disease of division that was plaguing the Corinthian church. Let's read in our copy of God's Word, uh, chapter 3, 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the seat that's in front of you, or I'll give you some uh, scripture verses, cues, and we can stay together. Uh, as we read along and you read in your copy. And I, brethren, uh, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you, verse 2, milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, verse 3, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Verse 4, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Verse 5, what then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Verse 7, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Let's stop right there. As we observed last time, as Paul is diagnosing this disease of division, he's going to do it in a way that is familiar to us, and he will do this numerous times in our study and so we'll just review it now. I may forget to review it later, but you'll see the pattern as we go through these things that Paul's going to talk about as his desire carried along by the Holy Spirit for the healthy church to prevail. He's going to use really three things uh, as he goes through the issues. This particular one at the beginning will help us see it, of course, but he'll use it over and over. That's the cause, the symptoms, uh, what it looks like personally, corporately, and the treatment, how it's healed. So what's the cause of the problem that's being dealt with, which is opposite of where the Lord wants the church in health, and then what are the symptoms of that problem personally and corporately, so what do they look like inside the church itself and individuals, and then the treatment, how can it be fixed? And Paul just goes through this, it's how he approaches uh, the church, it's how he approaches particular issues in the church, and so we just can use that as our outline, we don't have to come up with some fancy uh, outline or some uh, cross stick to help you remember it, all right? I'm not smart enough usually for that anyway, so I'll just say, I'll just do what Paul does and just look at the uh, outline he gives us. Now, we saw the cause last time. Paul starts this way, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. He says this, And brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, uh, as you, if you're a note taker, you can find, as I say this from time to time, in your bulletin, on the back, you'll find a series of notes that 
uh, from me to you as a takeaway. It won't be everything, of course, that we're going to talk about, but it will be some of the things. If that's helpful for you as you uh, watch uh, the, the slide behind me, you'll see some things underlined. That'll be your cue of uh, things that I think are important for you to uh, jot down. Now, as Paul says, and brethren, he's confirming the audience, of course. He is talking to believers. In a, it's a term of affection, and Paul uses it often, equality. And that's great to know. Paul uh, makes himself equal with all those who read his passage. And, and to make the rebuke easier, of course, because he's going to say brethren, and then he's going to rebuke them. So uh, it's easier for the Corinthian church to receive the rebuke after he says brethren, I think. And so Paul knows how to go about that, even hard things. And then he uses the word hostimatikos. He says, uh, like spiritual men, as spiritual men. I couldn't talk to you that way. And as we also saw last time, that word spiritual uh, means something entirely different, perhaps, from what the world would use that word for. I told you last time, my relatives who are not born again would refer to me as spiritual, but they don't mean the same thing that Scripture means. They just mean that I'm religious and kind of a nut and, and kind of have my uh, priorities in a different way than the world, perhaps. Spiritual could be someone who is a cult. I mean, from the world's perspective, it could be somebody who's just spirit-minded and the other, other levels of whatever. And, but that's not what the Bible means at all, okay, when it talks about spiritual. It's um, something different, widely different from what the world would say. Salvation has been provided for every believer, and the gift of the Holy Spirit has been provided. And every believer positionally, and we looked at this last time, is characterized by the Holy Spirit and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every believer made to understand spiritual things by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 2.15. We just looked at that not too long ago. And even led by the Holy Spirit, we saw in Romans 8, whether they like it or not, by the Holy Spirit, that even things that are done in us that would align with what the Holy Spirit would have us do, the Lord is going to lead us along by His Holy Spirit and then make all those things work together for the good of those who love God, those that are called according to His purpose. Now, so every believer then, according to Scripture, is spiritual. And that's an important distinction to make. And Paul's conclusion really as to the cause of disunity in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 3.1, is this. If you paraphrase it, in spite of the fact that you're positionally spiritual, and every believer is, practically you're not living spiritually. So, he says, I could not speak to you as, as to spiritual men. I couldn't speak to you, he says, as I should have been able to speak to you as to spiritual. I wish you were, another way to say it, as spiritual in your practice as you are in your position. Now, something we didn't look at last time, but there's a great way to look at this parallel in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the two intents of the word right side by side. So in case you're, you're still a little fuzzy on all that, let's just shore it up right here. Paul says this in Galatians 6, 1, and you can see the two right side by side here. Brethren, so once again, the audience is those who believe, okay? Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, that's a sin issue, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spiritual gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Stop right there. Now, here it is. Paul indicates his audience, and then he compares the two positions. Here they are. First, the one who is positionally spiritual, and that's every believer, positionally spiritual, but not practically spiritual, and that would be the believer caught in any trespass. Okay? And then he has, secondly, the one who is positionally spiritual and practically spiritual, and that would be the believer who is the one he's referring to, you who are spiritual, come alongside that person. And the second believer is told to keep watch lest he fall into a place of only positional spirituality and not practical spirituality. Okay, So it's, it's pretty simple right there, I think, and it really illustrates what we're talking about and what we've been talking about. He says so that you too will not be tempted. So keep watch, all right, even though you're in a position of positional and practical spirituality. 
And so that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Your position is spiritual for 1 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. Uh, your practice is not spiritual, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. In fact, he says, the reality of it here at Corinth, the practical outworking then in their life required Paul to speak to them as to, now look at the rest of the verse, verse 1, as to men of flesh, as to infants. And once again, we get the as again along with flesh. At flesh, sarkinos, as flesh, hos sarkinos, same idea, the same application. Uh, the root word here is the noun sarks. It just refers to the fleshly body. Uh, consisting of flesh and composed of flesh, okay? But here, his comparison is similar to the one he made in the previous uh, phrase, has pneumaticos, as to spiritual, he says, I had to speak to you as to flesh, as to men of flesh, has sarkinos, pertaining to the body. In other words, I had to speak to you as someone as earthly, as perishable material, even though they're not, right? Uh, wholly given to the flesh, rooted in the flesh, as it were, referring to a time when the unredeemed flesh and the nature of Adam were in perfect harmony, as we've spoken of over and over again. That's the unredeemed person. The nature of Adam and the flesh, perfect harmony, what the old nature wanted to do and what the flesh uh, was desirous to do were in perfect compatibility. And then you come to, know to faith in Christ, and the old you dies, and the new you rises, and now there's conflict all the time, okay? Uh, but that doesn't mean that you're not born again. It just means now you're still housed in unredeemed, unglorified flesh. So Paul says, I have to speak to you as Haas Sarkidos, as to men of flesh, uh, the basic nature of man before redemption. And what is that? Well, rebelliousness towards God, self-centeredness, arrogance, pride, willful disobedience, unsubmissiveness, whatever, those characteristics before redemption. And Paul said a moment ago, you are spiritual, but you aren't acting like it. And now he says, uh, you aren't still rooted in the flesh, but I have to talk to you as if you were. Okay? Now, look at verse 3. And Paul says, for you are still fleshly. So he just makes that clear statement. You're still fleshly. And in so many words, Paul indicates to the church, and just to paraphrase it, you're so messed up, I have to deal with you like I was dealing with a bunch of unbelievers. Because that's what the definition of an unbeliever looks like. And Paul doesn't take too long to get right to it. And that probably didn't sit very well with some of the readers who were involved in this very thing. Now, last time we illustrated what spiritual looked like and who was spiritual from Romans 8. We do the same thing again. Flip to Romans 8. Hold your finger here. We'll just be in Romans 8 for a minute. But as a review, really, the cathedral of the New Testament that really holds for us uh, wonderful theology and doctrine that we really need inside the church at all times. And it's great to review them from time to time. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, as we looked at last time, it was, we, was looking, uh, we were looking at what spiritual looks like. We can look at what flesh looks like, too. Look at Romans 8, uh, verse 1. That's where we're going to start. And I'm just going to comment as we go through. I'm not going to break it down so uh, intimately like we did and intricately like we did when we went through Romans, uh, just to give you some high points and help you see and kind of uh, parse out, if you will, uh, this idea, as Paul says, I'm speaking to you as to men of flesh. Therefore, that's where I am, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a wonder, I'm just going to pause right there and say, uh, that's a great reality coming on the heels of chapter 7 and the day-to-day -day battle of the appetites of the flesh which are in conflict with the desires of the new you, which is the reality of a true believer's life. So a really wonderful affirmation, there's no, comp there's no uh, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A marvelous verse, probably one of the most wonderful verses in all the New Testament. Now, number two, right together with Jesus said he came to seek and save that which was lost. Those two are marvelous companions to one another, okay? It gives the, the desire of God to save and then uh, the complete forgiveness that comes in salvation. Now, look at verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. 
Pause right there. When you came to faith, a more powerful law supplanted the previous law that ruled over you. And the power of sin was negated in your life. And, and the example I gave you back when we studied this was that you used to labor in one field under one master. And that master was your master. You had to answer to that master. And then you came to faith and you labor in another field. But you can still hear the old master calling across the fence, why don't you do this? And the flesh is perfectly acceptable with that, except you have a new master, and the, the law of God that's in your mind is going to war against those things. So this is a constant uh, interaction that we understand, but the law uh, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, pause right there, so in your flesh, you could not keep the law of God. You couldn't be good enough. All the flesh did with the good law of God was indulge in what God had said not to do. Paul says in, in chapter 7, when the law said don't covet, and I came to faith, I realized that the only thing that I wanted to do was covet because I saw it in the law. And then I just kind of acted uh, opposite of what the Lord intended. So we see that. We understand, I don't have to explain that to you. You understand how that works. Uh, when you were a kid, your parents said don't touch you know, the wet paint. Uh, the first thing that you wanted to do before you even knew there was wet paint there, but after you, did, you weren't going to touch the wall, but once you knew there was wet paint there, that's all you wanted to do at that point was touch the wall, and we, we see that still in our uh, adult bodies and our desires, okay? So, what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh. So, the good law of God just gave it to us, and we did what it told us not to do because our flesh is so corrupted. God did. God did that. What God accomplished what the law of God in our own flesh could not do. What was it he accomplished? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Pause right there. From a positional standpoint, all the redeemed walk, where? According to the spirit. So Paul's making a clear delineation here, okay? If you're redeemed, from a positional standpoint, you walk according to the Spirit. Now, that doesn't always look like that in your life on a day-to-day -day basis, and mine either. But that is a positional stand, okay? Positional standpoint, all the redeemed walk according to the Spirit. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, that's, that's the very illustration Paul used in 1 Corinthians 3.1, and that's why I wanted to come here. He said he had to speak to them as if they were according to the flesh, even though they're not. Because here he's talking about a saved and an unsaved person. And he calls the saved, unsaved man somebody who sets their mind on the things of the flesh. Okay, you get that. Now, pick up right there, verse 5. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. Why is that, beloved? Well, because that's an unbeliever. That's another way to define an unbeliever, the mindset on the flesh. Okay? But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. Pause right there. A definition of a lost person. Hostile towards God. Will not subject themselves to God. Left to themselves. Unable to submit to God. Verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here, he doesn't, doesn't call a non-believer natural. He calls them fleshly. Okay? Now, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, still distinguishing, beloved, between a believer and a non-believer. But anyone does, not, uh, anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ. He does not belong to him. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, we hammered that out, we understand what that means, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The new you has been raised up. Body still dead because of sin. You inhabit a body that is, uh, has a sin desire. 
If Christ is in you, verse 10, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness, verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there's that process of sanctification, ultimately glorification of your body, but that process of bringing the body into subjection. The body is sin-ravaged and has appetites that align with the old self, but ultimately will be glorified and its desires will be changed in, this, in the now, though, as a result of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So an ultimate glorification in the now, a step-by-step process of purging those things, uh, those old appetites, and not submitting to them anymore. Now look at verse 12. It's all a result of the Holy Spirit, okay? Verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, which implies that that could be the case from time to time, right? So you're not under obligation to live according to the flesh, but that could be what's going on from time to time. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That doesn't indicate that you can somehow lose your salvation. It just indicates the pattern of your life, okay? If the pattern of your life are uh, flesh, and that's the pattern of your life always, forever, then you're on your way to death, and you're already dead, actually. And if the pattern of your life, though, is putting to death the deeds of the body, even though from time to time you're not very good at it, you're still on that path, and there's no way you're losing your salvation. Now, look at verse 14. It can't happen. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Simply... It's obvious to whom you belong when you follow in obedience, okay? All those who are uh, being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so sometimes it doesn't look like it, but positionally, that is the case for everyone. Now, I want to stop right there, flip back over to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, and we're going to connect these things together, okay? Now, this connects all these to Paul's statement, all right? You're not natural anymore because you do have the Holy Spirit, and no Christian is ever called natural. But when you do the things you're doing, you could be defined by the same terms. And I think it's important to understand that, because that's what Paul is actually doing, okay? Because you're functioning on the basis of the flesh, the very thing Paul said in Romans 8, 12, we're obligated not to do, okay? But could be the case, but we're obligated not to do it, but you could be doing it. And Paul obviously understands that they are doing it in Corinth and says, I can't talk to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, okay? So when a Christian sins... And this is where we can kind of parse this out. There's no difference in substance. There's no difference in classification between his sin and the sin of an unbeliever. Okay? And I know you know this, so I'm just going to state the obvious. Believers don't sin better sins and don't have a better level of sinning. If anything, it's worse because we know that we're not condemned and we understand the price that was paid and then we do it anyway. Okay? Sin is a sin. The same flesh that functioned before you were saved will produce the same kind of sin defined in the same terms after you're saved. It should be less frequent, but it'll be just the same sin when it happens, okay? And you're not condemned, and all the things still stand. We're not undermining any of those things, okay? It's just we don't sin better sins. There's the same sins, okay? Now, so a Christian who is spiritual could never be natural, but he could behave in a fleshly manner or after the manner of the flesh. And fleshly or after the flesh is the true definition of an unbeliever, okay? Because we just saw that in Romans 8, okay? So Paul's saying, in essence, to the church at Corinth, you're so messed up, I have to deal with you like I'm dealing with a bunch of unbelievers. That's what he says. And that's very consistent with other parts of Scripture. For instance, in Matthew 18, when dealing with an unrepentant sin issue, after a process, the person is put out of the church and dealt with, according to verse 17, as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
So they'll be dealt with by the church as an unbeliever, even though they're probably born again. Later, 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to get, that, get to that in just a month or so, where Paul is dealing with purity and then the problem of immorality. God wants a healthy church. He wants a pure church. And he's, so he's going to deal with this problem of immorality in the Corinthian church, which has a very deleterious effect on the health of the church, of course. Uh, but Paul says, uh, no doubt using the same process found in Matthew 18, 17 and 1 Corinthians 5, 5. So same process because Paul's not going to violate the process the Lord laid down. But I have decided, he says, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, and this is very important, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Are we talking about an unbeliever? No, because his spirit wouldn't be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, right? But Paul simply says that he must be dealt with as a non-believer and put back in the non-believer's realm. 1 Timothy 1.18 through 20, uh, Paul gives Timothy the pastor some important instructions. Here's what he says. Uh, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, and then this parenthetical statement here, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, uh, that by them, so he's talking about something that he and Timothy know about and, and we don't know about, so we just kind of put parentheses around that. And then he says this, mark this, it's very important. Here's what I want you to do. Fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then our point, or the reason why we're going to this, our point from Paul, verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so they will be taught not to blaspheme. So, Again, Paul says, I dealt with them as non-believers and put them back in the non-believers realm, outside the protection of the church so they could be taught the lessons they need to learn. So, here's the thing. A believer is positionally spiritual, but he or she may not be practically spiritual. And if he or she is not practically spiritual, then they are fleshly and acting like a person who isn't born again. That's Paul's point. So, we're kind of summing up all these passages kind of putting them together in a package. And that is really tragic. Fleshly Christians behaving as if they were never saved. Uh, and that's not showing much gratitude for the God who saved them. And yet, that's exactly the situation that Paul's dealing with. And further, that is part of Paul's diagnosis of the cause of the dissension inside the Corinthian church. And then he adds this commentary at the end of verse 1. He says, as to, again, infants in Christ. And again, he uses the word as. As infants Hos nepios, Paul describing those in the church involved in the dissension, he calls them as to infants. Uh, nepios by itself would refer to an infant, a little child, a minor, uh, not of age, someone not of age. Now, just to make something clear, I don't find anywhere in the scripture where a new Christian is a synonym for a babe, okay? Uh, Christians could be called babes, but not because they were new Christians. They would be called babes because they were as new believers, didn't have much knowledge of spiritual things. So it's not a derogatory term in the context as if they're new believers and it's some kind of derogatory reference to them. It's never used that way. But when Paul uses it in this context, as infants, it's a rebuke. He says, in essence, you people know too much to be treated this way. I'm treating you as babes. He says to the Corinthian church, I have to talk to you as if you were untaught and you were unskilled because that's how you're acting. So the writer of Hebrews uses it in exactly the same way and this illustrates it for us. We get it kind of condensed down, Hebrews 5, 12, on the screen behind me. He says this, For though by this time, writer of Hebrews says to this audience, you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. And that's the parallel, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. When you see milk and meat, you're not talking about two different doctrine, just talking about the depth of the doctrine, okay? So Paul says, listen, you should be teachers, but you're not. 
and you've come to need milk and not solid food, uh, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. See the difference? Being an infant, being untrained, uh, little knowledge of spiritual things is not derogatory unless it shouldn't be the case, and then it's used as a reproof. And so Paul says, then, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, look back there again, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to flesh and as to infants in Christ. Now, and we know the context of the use of as these three different times, and uh, in the first verse, you, so you, you understand Paul's comparison and the rebuke inside the comparison. So just to shore up our understanding, uh, when Paul says they were as babes, we understand that they were not new Christians. Okay, so understand he's not using a derogatory term for brand new Christian. Paul had been there teaching for them, them for how long? Do you remember, beloved? He's been in Corinth, he was in Corinth for 18 months, so a year and a half uh, of there, sitting under Paul's teaching for a year and a half. Imagine that, then, you've read Paul's writings. Imagine sitting under Paul's teaching for a year and a half. I would imagine he'd cover a lot of territory, right? I mean, we can read Romans and we can cover a lot of territory just in a letter. So imagine that was maybe one sermon for Paul, and, and likely uh, you would get quite a bit in 18 months. So after sitting under Paul's teaching for a year and a half, you think someone would still be a babe? In the non-derogatory term, in a new, a new Christian, but didn't know much, they probably wouldn't be a babe anymore, right? Um, I, I think he would have covered a lot of territory. If you were still a babe, I, I think it would be safe to say you weren't listening. And after Paul, uh, you know, the Lord brought Apollos to them, uh, do you remember what? Scripture says about Apollos, Acts 18.24, says he was an eloquent man, and he was mighty in the what? Scriptures, right? Mighty in the Scriptures. And just so that you can be sure there was enough time for them to grow, it had been more than four years since Paul had departed from Corinth. So he was there for a year and a half, and he was gone for more than four years, and Apollos is there teaching, okay? Undoubtedly, some of the people Paul is addressing here had been there at least four years, uh, some had been under Paul's ministry, uh, followed by Apollos, because there was no church there before Paul planted one. So pulled, you know, the Lord pulled them by his Holy Spirit out of paganism and into the church. So a uh, year and a half then under Paul's teaching, probably not still babes unless they weren't listening. Uh, and then under, after Paul's ministry, they were followed by Apollos, who was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures. And some had been under Peter's ministry, because we see him referred to in part of the faction, and some had obviously met Jesus, because they say, I'm of Christ, but they were still involved in the arguing. And so when Paul says, I have to deal with you like a bunch of non-believers, he's really reproving them, isn't he? Considering the exposure to the word that they had received. How could they be spiritually unlearned if they'd been under all that teaching? See, that's the essence. And that's a great question, and the scripture answers it. And uh, understand this, Scripture uh, teaches us a number of things, but teaches, teaches particularly in the passage we're going to look at in just a minute. It's on the screen behind me. If you walk in the flesh long enough, you're going to shift your spiritual gears into reverse and become what James 1.25 calls a forgetful hearer. Okay? Now, I want to illustrate that for you. James chapter 1, verse 22, uh, it says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's pretty strong, isn't it? I mean, you, you hear the word, you understand what the word says, uh, but you're just hearers and you're deluding yourself. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Stop right there. Now, the idea then is that you literally lose the ability to function on the things you once knew. And you kind of go in reverse. First neutral, 
uh, then reverse backwards, and this perhaps is what happened in the Corinthian church. Um, this is perhaps what's happened there. They forgot the things they should have known. The fleshliness had stunted their growth. Uh, they certainly were under teaching by Paul a year and a half. They would have been under Apollos for, by the time Paul writes this letter, uh, up to four years or maybe a little longer. And so they certainly had had the teaching, uh, but they had forgotten the things they should have known. Paul's speaking to them as men of flesh, as unto infants and not to spiritual men. So he's making it clear where the position is. Okay, So they forgot the things they should have known. Their fleshliness had stunted their growth. And they were looking into the word of God. And as Apostle Paul uh, and later Apollos, but they forgot what it looked like and what they looked like. And they couldn't benefit from it. It's like what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Once again, not derogatory at the beginning. See, as he's speaking to people, he says, like newborn babes. That's not a derogatory term in that sense. Long for the pure milk of the word. So new believers desiring the pure milk of the word. So the, the elementary doctrines of Christ, understanding those basic things and moving. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. But beloved, you can't get to verse 2 without verse 1. When Paul says, or when Peter says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It's impossible to get to two if you don't get through one, see. And as long as there's malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and all those things have definitions, of course. Hypocrisy, say one thing to one thing, one person another thing to another. Uh, envy, some other position or, or, or uh, responsibility you want and you don't have. And slander, uh, that's talking uh, negatively or uh, badly about someone else. As long as those are in your life, then you're not going to long for the... Uh, the milk of the word, and you're just going to be finding yourself only able to understand the milk of the word, not growing in respect to salvation, even though you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, see? And so that could be a position that's in the church, and it certainly is the one that's at Corinth. So if you don't lay those things aside, you're not a receptacle that can contain the truth and certainly the meat of the word, see? You can't receive it. And what has likely happened here in Corinth, all this walking in the flesh resulted in them have, and being as if they were spiritually immature, couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, even though they were in Christ, even though they were Christians, even though they'd been a long time since they come to faith, they were because of their fleshliness spiritually unintelligent. Maybe they didn't know these truths because they'd forgotten them, or maybe they'd just forgotten the ability to apply them. It happens a lot even now. The practice didn't match the position of the exposure of the truth. They were carnal. They were manifesting terrible immaturity, even though they were in Christ. That's a really strong rebuke from Paul to the Corinthian church. Now Paul goes further. Look at verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul is diagnosing the church, of course, and he told them the cause. Now he moves on to the symptoms. So we're going to get to the symptoms now. Cause, you're fleshly. Cause, I can't speak to you, spiritual men. As to babes in Christ, that's the cause of all your problems. That's where you are. You've forgotten these things. You've become a forgetful hearer. You've gone backwards. You can hear the word of God. You can't possibly, at this point in your life, put it into play. You can't do what we're asking you to do. You're just going to stick with what you think you need to do. Paul says, that's where you are. That's the, that's the cause. Now, here's the symptoms. Verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. This is really parallel to this passage in 1 Peter we saw just a moment ago. Now, here Paul is not really rebuking them at, at the first part of the verse. He's just giving them a history lesson. Okay. Once again, not a negative connotation. 
Uh, when you come to faith, that's not a negative connotation for you to be referred to as a babe, okay? It's because you just don't know a lot about the faith. He said, you know, here's how you can understand this, as they hear this in their ears, you know, I fed you with milk when I first came there. You were unlearned in the faith, so I didn't give you meat. And he's just talking about the depth of his teaching again, okay? And then the rebuke comes. Indeed, here's what he says, even now you're not able. And that's the thing Paul says that it really amazes me, is that you're still not able to receive it. You're still fleshly. I could expect a little fleshliness, and you can kind of get in this dialogue of probably perhaps Paul's thoughts as he looks at this thing, certainly as we've seen his teaching in other places. You know, I could expect a little fleshliness when you were in your infancy, right? I mean, you were just saved. You can't expect a guy to know everything. I mean, there's going to be some things showing up in your life that aren't part of what a mature believer would allow in their life. Um, you know, Paul says, I can understand you were just a spiritual infant. You'd just been saved. You have a little fleshliness. I gave you some milk. I brought you along. That's the depth of teaching, beginning level. And then, but the thing that shocks me, Paul says, is that you still can't handle the meat. And here we are years later. You've had Apollos. You have Peter. And some of you heard Jesus. And you're still on the bottle. It's not where you should be. See, I'll tell you, it's in the modern church today not just in the Corinthian church. And you've heard me say this many times in this way, a mile wide and an inch deep. Modern Christianity for the most part. And you know, we love babies. My wife and I, we love babies. We, we had four of them and they were all boys and we had a great time. Clarks are here, they had seven babies and they were all boys and so we commiserate a little bit and understand that. And if you had all boys, you understand. If you have all girls, I have no idea what you're going through, but I commiserate with you, okay? But uh, we love babies. We think babies are terrific, okay? And there's nothing like a little baby. That's wonderful. But when you see a 20-year-old person with the mind of a baby, that's a tragedy, isn't it? And that's, that breaks your heart when you see that happen. And I love new believers. And I love leading people to faith. And I love bringing them along and discipling them. It's one of the things that is my biggest joy in the ministry. And Wednesday nights is when I get to do that a lot after the bistro is over. It's a marvelous thing to do. And they come to faith, and they don't know anything about God or Jesus, and there's stuff in their life, of course, that shouldn't be there, but it's going to be purged out, but the Holy Spirit's going to do it, and we just kind of come along, right? And uh, he saved them from their sins. But listen, beloved, a 20-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 60-year-old believer in Jesus Christ, who's still a new believer, in their comprehension of things, because of the way they act, you can see, or because they can't hear what you're saying, that's a tragedy. And that breaks your heart. The spiritual and physical have that in common, see? The saddest thing in the church is to see someone who's grown up physically and grown along in years in Christianity and he has the mentality of an infant and never able to know the deep things of God, not putting into any of that into practice, none of the hard things, and yet by all practical appearances, full grown. So Paul says, listen, I was with you a few years ago. I expect you to take milk, but, you know, it's heartbreaking that you're still on it, and, and I can relate to that. I really can. He says in the end of verse 3, he says, are you not fleshly? Are you not still walking like mere men? You know, you're acting like you're unsaved. It's ridiculous. Prolonged, pitiful infancy. This is not where you should be, Paul says. I mark this, beloved. Spiritual immaturity in a believer that has been saved for a while is the result of fleshliness over the long term. Okay? And I think we can make that parallel very easily over and over and over and over and over in the Word of God. The First Peter passage, the James passage, certainly the passage we're in here, the other Corinthian passages as we move along. Listen. You know, Paul's dealt himself out of the deal here, okay, for a temporary time. But he's going to come back to what they've said about him, what they've done to him, how they treated him, all that. He's going to come back and say, listen, is this how that's supposed to look? So this is a very important rebuke that Paul's bringing. It's very in-depth. It's got a lot of scope. And it applies very clearly, okay, to the modern church. Spiritual ignorance and fleshliness are tied inseparably together. 
And, and here are these people in their fleshliness. They had absolutely voided the things they were hearing. They'd forgotten the things they'd been taught. They'd sat under Paul for a year and a half under Apollos, who was mighty in the scriptures and eloquent. So he was fun to listen to, you know, unlike me, perhaps. And you, would you please make a point at one point or time or another as you work your way through your message? But not, not Apollos. You know, he's like eloquent. All right. So they, they had all, they had the pleasing to the ear and depth of scripture. They had Paul, of course, who'd been marvelous to listen to at any time, okay? And of course, some people weren't enraptured by Paul because one fell out of a window and, and died. Good thing Paul was there because he could run down there and bring him back to life. But uh, just because the service went long. So, you know, if I see you nodding off, I know I've, I've extended my, uh, my time out too far. Anyway, here's these people in their fleshliness, absolutely voided the things that we're hearing. They're involved in factions, involved in backbiting, in gossip, in complaining, in criticism, all the things that go along with divisions, okay? Paul doesn't take up what the division is about. He just says, listen, because you're doing it, you're still in the flesh. Because you're doing it, I'm still treating you like a babe. Because you're doing it, you're not like men who are spiritual. You're like men who are in flesh, see? They thought they were right. You know, they didn't even have the receptivity to take Paul's instruction. He has to go on in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7, and it's just so sad. And here's Paul, who we revere, had to say, hey, didn't I have a right to bring a believing wife, and didn't I have a right to take pay from you, and didn't I have a right to do all that? I had a right not to work when I was among you, didn't I? I had a right to be heard from you. You despised me and said, oh, he's mighty in his words when he writes something, but he's really weak when he speaks to us. These are all the things they say about Paul, see? So understand, listen, this is, this is just fleshliness. This is just babes. If this is there, that's what it is. And it's long-term fleshliness that causes it. They moved backwards, forgetful hearer. They were fleshly, and all that fleshliness and worldliness caused a disease, a division. That's it. You're still fleshly. That's what he says in verse 3. See? And I can relate to that. And I really, I really believe that the greatest tragedy in the church is manifest immaturity from people who know better, who know more, and have been around long enough to be mature. That's a grieving thing for me. The deep things, the rich things are here. Once you were babes, some of you, and that, and that was good, you were babes and we expected fleshly manifestations from a newborn Christian. Uh, you didn't know that much, but really, you're not acting your age now, Paul says. Listen, you've been saved far too long to be on milk. You ought to be feeding yourself, Paul says. You, 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 and so much of the ministry, and I mean personal ministry for me, that I have to deal with is dealing with those who are immature, dealing with those who cannot hear who cannot forgive, who cannot bridge the gap, who have to have their way, who have to say mine, 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 me, me, me. That's the thing. Not because they're new Christians, see, but because they've continued in flesh with a worldly, worldly mindset. So Paul tells us the cause of the disease, fleshliness, the worldly problem solving, because he brought the wisdom in, in in chapter two. You have worldly wisdom you bring to bear in the church, and then you have this fleshly attitude. You're still a babe, and you're not spiritual. And he says you have a division because you use man's wisdom to do church business, and you're fleshly. And that's why you have your problems, he says. Now, the symptoms, which is the second point in Paul's outline, verse 3, it says, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? He doesn't say what the jealousy and, 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 uh, and, uh, and strife are about, does he? He just says you have it. And because you have it, and because you won't let go of it, you're still fleshly. What are the symptoms of the disease of division? Jealousy and strife. That's the symptoms. If they're there, you're fleshly. If they're there, you're babe in Christ. If you're there, I can't treat you like a spiritual person, Paul says. Your translation may say jealousy and wrangling or jealousy and fighting. Uh, very similar uh, definitions. Attitude and action. Those are the symptoms. The attitude, jealousy. The action, strife or fighting. Wrangling or hassling. 
Now, please mark this, okay, as you jot that down. Fleshliness doesn't just cause these particular symptoms, okay? When Paul says you're still fleshly, for since there is, and then he says, of course, jealousy and strife, you could put a dot, 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 and you could put in a bunch of other stuff. Any number of words after that statement. Fleshliness causes many diseases in the church, much like cancer. For example, if you look at Galatians chapter 5, and I'll put it on the screen for time, verse 16 and 17, he says, But I say, Paul says to the church in Galatia, I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, we already know they were led by the Spirit. Okay, positionally, it's true. Practically, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. That's not news to anyone who sits here who knows Christ, so that you may not do the things that you please. Okay? So we looked at, at that in Romans 7, so we don't have to go back over that again. Paul defines and identifies a number of, of the trademarks of walking uh, in the desire of the flesh. Okay? And verse 19, he starts with that, and he says, Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, here it is, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. So Paul makes it clear that it's not an exhaustive list, it's just a list. And it takes in some of the things we're also talking about when he talks to the Corinthians. So he's telling the Galatians the same thing. So Paul's very consistent. That's what it looks like to be men of flesh, even though you're spiritual. I can't teach you like spiritual. To be babes in Christ, even though you are, should be fully grown. Fleshliness will affect your morality, your relationships to other people, your reactions, your behavior. In verse 20, Paul says, disputes, dissensions, factions. Same thing he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3.3. Fleshliness manifested one style of symptom in the area of envy and strife, and that produces division in the Corinthian church, but it can manifest a whole lot of other things that are going to cause problems too. And you know, here's the thing. And here's the thing you need to understand about the church, both the ancient church and the modern church. There are people in the church that like division. It's hard to imagine that, okay? But there are people who thrive on it. They thrive on criticism. They thrive on division. They thrive on, on accusatory statements. They thrive on any type of division or something that somebody thinks that's different. They love it. They've, and they foster that. They, they love to be involved in that, okay? They pride themselves on belonging to a certain faction or a certain party. And whenever there's a division in the church, it's a manifestation of flesh, fleshliness. And they, don't, they can't absorb that, okay? Because they're still babes, even though they should be full grown. There's people who enjoy it. Let me tell you, beloved, mature Christians rejoice in the total unity of the church, okay? They do everything they can to strive for that unity. They don't ever start little groups that disagree with somebody else. They don't ever polarize around one person over here or, one, or another group over there polarizes a person over here. They're totally involved in what the Lord wants and what he wants is unity. And whenever you see division, those who are fostering it are always babes. Our physical experiences reflect this. The most selfish people in the world, far and away, babies, right? If you have one at home, you know what I'm talking about. He wants it when he wants it, and he wants it right now, and if you're like one second late, it's a catastrophe, okay? Go down to the nursery right now, and you get a perfect illustration. One kid has a truck, and four other kids want it, and if we allow them, they'd be piled on top of each other and screaming bloody murder and pulling hair out and pulling diapers off and everything else to get it. Okay? Right? 
Fleshliness manifests itself in selfishness, and selfishness is the mother of division. And you can hear Paul really listening to this in the church in Corinth. I want it different than the way it is. We believe it should be this way because we like what Peter did. We believe it should be this way because we like what Paul did. But we're of Christ, and that's better by far. So we want it this way. And we like Apollos, and Apollos was this way. This is how it should be, see? And Paul can hear this in his ears. This is our group, and there are others who think this way, see? As well as we do. Others. You get mature people, and you know what mature people are doing? They're too busy concentrating on God and the message of the gospel and serving and forgiving and showing hospitality and discipling and giving themselves away and giving what they have away to be worried about what everybody's little group is saying or doing. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, Paul puts their words back in their mouth to make them understand the symptoms are personal, okay? In case they're saying, well, I don't do any of that. Okay, well, let's see if you said any of these things. Paul says this, for when one says, now I'm sure because from Chloe, you probably knew who was saying it, okay? But he's just being general so you can attach to it anonymously and then be on the way to be fixed. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? He doesn't even say what the, div- the, the difference was, right? What kind of style it was, or how it was approached, or what. He's not even talking about it, okay? I like what Paul does. I like how Apollos thinks. I want to do like Peter does, or in the modern church. I want to do like I think it should be done. I, I want to do it like we did in another church. I, I want to be in charge of this. I don't want you to be in charge of this. I want, I want, I want, I like, I like, I like, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, me, 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 I, 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 no, no, no. It sounds like a Christmas carol. Me, 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 right? I mean, that's what it's like, see? Division can only happen where there's fleshliness. And again, it isn't the differences that Paul's focusing on. Whatever problems there may be or may be imagined, it's the faction that he's condemning. Attitude, jealousy, action, wrangling, and strife, see? Fleshly people can be immature people. Immature people can't hear reasoning from the Word of God any more than a young child can be told to change and understand exactly what you mean, Okay? And young children are jealous of what others have and what others do, and they create a lot of strife. And Paul points that out. And believers who are fleshly, see, regress into spiritual infancy and manifest the same traits. So Paul has diagnosed the Corinthian church, and he's given them the cause. What is it? Fleshliness. The cause of division is fleshliness. He's given them the symptoms, jealousy and strife. And now he comes to the cure. And nobody wants to take a long time to get well. So Paul doesn't take a long time with it, okay? He gives a quick cure, an antidote for the very contagious disease of division. Here it is. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. That's not a uh, lecture on elder leadership. It's not a lecture on what a pastor looks like. It's not a lecture on the responsibilities a pastor has. We have other places for that. He just says this. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Here's the cure for the disease of division. It's underlined right there. Get your eyes back on one God. The human instrument is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that there's no leadership. It doesn't mean that it doesn't fall under a certain way. It just means this is the cure. Get your eyes back on God. The human instrument is irrelevant. Pastors, which is the topic of the division here in Corinth, guys who have pastored the church or pastored other churches, and they're bringing this issue up about these things, about these guys, They're just agents. 
even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. The only reason I am what I am is the Lord gave it to me, okay? I don't have every spiritual gift. I have some. I don't have every ability. I have some of them. I have a background where the Lord brought me up in the church. I bring that to bear, okay? It's not the issue. The only reason you came to Christ through me is that's the way the Lord designed it. If you have been growing in your faith because of me, it's because God's at work in you. I'm just a tool. That's it. And Paul really makes it clear in verse 6 as he uses an agricultural expression. Verse 6, he says this. What then is Apollos and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. In other words, Paul says, listen, no more comparisons, no more criticisms. Don't honor me. Don't honor Apollos. We both had different ministries, the different giftings, different approaches. Honor God. And not only did we differ in our gifting and approaches, ultimately, we are nothing. Verse 7, so then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God, it says, who causes the growth. When it comes right down to it, we are nothing. Which, if you know me, you know that I detest titles. People who call me Reverend Parker or Pastor Parker. What do I say to you when you come up and say, Pastor Parker, I say, my name is Kurt. Call me Kurt. Why? Because I'm really nothing, and I really don't want any recognition. Okay? And I understand, and you don't offend me when you say, Pastor Parker, okay? I, I, I get that. You want to show some respect, and I, I appreciate that more than you know, because I don't think I'm deserving of too much respect, okay? But the fact of the matter is, we're nothing. Paul says, listen, neither is the one who plants, nor is the one who waters anything. That's Paul and Apollos in this illustration, and they're nothing, and that certainly makes me nothing, okay? Because I'm not comparing to those guys. But God who causes the growth, once again, get your eyes on the one God, the God who causes the growth, the human instrument is irrelevant, when it comes right down to it, we're nothing. Just a servant through whom you perhaps came to Christ. I'm a servant perhaps through whom you grew in Christ. I'm a servant perhaps who empowered you for ministry, involved you in ministry, helped you do it, or empowered you in some way to do ministry. I'm just a servant. That's it. And I just was here because God brought me here, and I'm doing it because that's God's at work in you, okay? Through his word. I have a job to do. I have a trust that I discharge. I'm not talking about any of that, Okay. Uh, as one who has to give an account for Thessalonians, okay? I understand that. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're talking about factions that are, are connected to this church. Paul says, listen, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. Just agents by whom you came to faith or perhaps grew in the faith. And if anything good happens, see, it's all God. And then just to assure them that he and Apollos are not at odds, he says this. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. So we're in agreement with each other. We're working together, okay? I'm not at odds with Apollos. Even though he didn't kind of name the fat, whatever it was, he just says, understand this, I'm not at odds with this person, okay? We're in agreement. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Who's he talking about? Paul and Apollos. He's talking about those who have led, okay? That's the, that's the topic. You don't need to honor us. We're going to get our honor from whom? From God. We're going to have to give an account to him, too, about what we did, okay? Very similar to 1 Peter 5, 4 passage I learned by heart when I came into the ministry, one that I read many times over and over again. When the chief shepherd, chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's what Paul's talking about, what Peter's re referring to here. Paul says, we'll wait. Uh, Apollo says, we'll wait. Peter says, we'll wait. Right there. I say, and every elder who served or has served, if they understand this principle, says, I'll wait. I'm okay with waiting. 
because it won't be temporary and the honor won't be fading. It won't be judged on the whims of ungodly people or babes in Christ or those who love factions or whatever. It's not going to be judged there, Paul says. But each will receive his own reward according to his own success. Is that it? Is that what it says? Each will receive a reward according to his own how good he is at it. How marvelous everybody really likes him. No. Each one will receive a reward according to his own labor. And some pastors work awfully hard, and depending on where they are and who they have to work with, have very little success. And some missionaries spend all their lives and get very few converts. But that's not what the Lord's judging it on, is he? For those who serve in leadership in the church, it's according to the labor. That's why Paul says, honor those highly who labor hard among you and preach the word. And give them double honor. Why? Because the Lord honors labor. And some have to work with very difficult situations, have very little success, and others to a greater or lesser degree, but God rewards according to the labor of each. And then he says, and we're going to end with this, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul says, we're just working together with God. Get your attention off of us and onto him. And those two different comparisons are pretty important, beloved. God's fellow workers, those who work as elders, pastors. God's field, the church that's being planted, watered, and is growing and should be growing. God's building, the church that's being built into a spiritual house. Responsibilities on both sides of that illustration, and anything good that happens is because of him. And believe me, beloved, if you really get your attention on him, not only will it eliminate division, it'll eliminate fleshliness too. You bow with me in prayer as we close our time out together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We always thank you for it, particularly today as this passage so important, so rich, so full of these things that you wanted the Corinthian church to know and, of course, every church on down from them. And, Father, we thank you for uh, the many illustrations that we see in the other uh, scriptural writers that talk about these same things. If we didn't have trouble in the church, we wouldn't have to have all the epistles to deal with them. And so we understand that we all bring with us a brand new person on the inside and flesh that desires to do the opposite of what we see the law of God in our mind telling us to do on the outside. Which is why you tell us over and above all things to forgive one another who have a dispute or any contrary thing against each other, even as Christ forgave you because we live in this fleshly body. And as our heads are bowed, just for a moment before we close, there may be some of you this morning who uh, do not know our Lord. You know you're not a spiritual man or a woman led by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, redeemed by Christ, but you desire to be. Why don't you express that silently in your heart to God who hears every unspoken word and reads every thought and just say, Lord God, I desire through Jesus Christ and his death for me to follow him and to receive the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit and redeemed from my wickedness and assured of a home in heaven and God will respond and do that. 
It's been a while since we've offered that opportunity, and I don't want to let too long a time pass between, even though these passages certainly deal with the church and believers. We want to make sure that you understand that God's heart is inclined towards you, beloved. It's not as well that any parish would all come to the knowledge of salvation. And if you've prayed that prayer just now, and that's the desire of your heart, we indicate that on the card that's there in the pew in front of you, and let me know that. Give that to me when you walk out. It'd be my joy to pray for you and to encourage you and help you grow and to water uh, and to help you mature, plug you in with someone who can do that or myself. It'd be our joy to do that. Some of you, of course, as believers have been walking in the flesh. You've been manifesting division, jealousy, contention, wrangling, backbiting, discord, whatever. Why don't you pray and ask God to deliver you from that? Transform your heart into the walk and the spirit that he intended it to be all along consistent with your position, who you are, and certainly consistent with how long you've been a believer. So, Father, as we pray these things and we give these challenges and encouragement and rebuke and and correction and instruction and all the things your word gives to us, we pass on and we thank you for our time this morning, for the clear uh, word that you gave us. We pray that you'll bind it to our hearts. As I think about the frontlets for the, the Jews would wear of the law bound on before their eyes, for the priests that they might constantly be looking at the law of God, that it may be in their mouths. And, and when we stand and sit and, and walk in the way and lie down and all the things we read, that your word might be before us just like it was before the priests and that it might do more than it did for them, perhaps, Father, for some of them. And Father, we pray that the truth will govern our behavior in our lives for your glory. And we pray that if there be any division, you'll heal the disease. That, that might be honest, objective understanding of the cause of that division, which is just fleshliness. And there might be a refocusing on you and uh, you alone. So there might be a reversing of the direction of the life. And that we may be able to understand your truth and grow to maturity. Father, we pray this and commit ourselves to you and the word to you to be used in our lives continually as we walk out of the building today. And we pray that in Christ's name and for his sake and all God's people said, amen.